With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Mora's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Mora Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you for this part two? I'm doing better, just slightly better than how I was doing for part one. How are you? I'm doing great. I mean, we yes, we recorded the intro for part one just moments before uh, we're recording this right here, so it's hard to be doing uh, much different, but yeah, I agree. And uh, a good reminder, if you haven't listened to part one, you should probably do that first um, because it's a it's an interview that you would be jumping in halfway through if you're listening to this without hearing the first part of Tara MZ Gags, our discussion with her. Uh, this is now her third appearance on the show, and uh, she is a wealth of knowledge. She is very organized, and in this episode, just like part one here, we come up with some questions for Bill Rausch, Maura Murray's boyfriend at the time of her disappearance. Yeah, and like we said in the uh, first uh, episode's intro, 
these questions aren't intended to be presented to Bill as sort of an interrogation. We're not sitting him down with a single light bulb and, and, you know, holding him for 14 hours. We're not law enforcement. And we should be very thankful that he is open to receiving these questions. Ultimately, it is to find out some of the details that would lead to an answer, whether it is excluding a certain person, excluding himself, ruling himself out, uh, ruling somebody else out. Uh, even telling us like how how things work when you when you're dismissed from the military on emergency leave like this, a lot of miscommunication goes on and a lot of speculation happens. And I think uh, having someone like Tara involved in these discussions and this investigation from the community's uh, point of view, their perspective, her communicating with us, with Bill, with other people in the community, uh, I think that is where she really shines because. It's all very clear and very uh, meticulous and detailed on her end. You know, we're, we're looking for answers in Mora's disappearance. We're looking to try to move past uh, some of the issues that the community has regarding Bill. And uh, so that would be great to move past that. So uh, here's to that. And thank you very much for listening, everybody. phone records I'll go to this point um, you know the infamous whimpering Red Cross call <laughs> I'm sure it's been discussed many a times but one thing I've never seen answered is whether um, Fred or Kathleen or another Murray family member ever heard that whimpering call you would think like I would like to think if if that was on my phone of my of my loved one that went missing I'd want to share it with the, the family to say, hey, this is what I hear when I listen to the message. What do you guys hear? Well, we have talked about it so much, but we have never heard anything about Julie or Fred or Fred Jr. or Kathleen or Curtis hearing that uh, voicemail message. We, we haven't heard anything. Um, if we have and I've forgotten, then I apologize, but I don't think we've had any of them say no or yes to whether or not they've heard it. Um, but we do know that Bill's mom heard it, right? Or at least she described it based on Bill's, uh, Bill's description. She did. Um, I've read that when Bill played the call uh, for law enforcement, that all law enforcement could hear was static. So that to me is very odd because Bill hears something, um, I think in Sharon's words, that was utterly chilling and that he was tortured every time he heard it. So it's baffling to me, in addition to the fact that he deleted the voicemail without keeping a copy of it or knowing for certain that law enforcement had a copy of it. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a good one too. I wonder um if if anyone else heard it or who else heard it and and yeah that that is that's a weird discrepancy but maybe one of those mental tricks that your brain plays uh you know being the boyfriend of a missing person it's if if it's static and he thinks it's his missing uh girlfriend maybe that makes some sense there i don't know i don't i don't know i mean if he's if he's so affected by it and he brings it to the police and he says you need to listen to this 
even if it was just static, I'm just playing this out in my head, even if it was just static and he thinks, well, maybe Mora called me and even though it's just static, maybe the police can get something out of this. All I know is that I have a weird voicemail message. So so that would be enough, I think, for for him to bring it to the police, right? Even if it was just static. Right. Well, he told us he played it in the room, right? And they passed their phone. He passed his phone around to the detectives. Right. I, I just think like that description of uh, chilling is is so almost hyperbolic. In a, in a way where are you doing it? Are you describing it as chilling? Like there's no in between there. The the police say that was just static. And someone who listened to it said it was so chilling he couldn't. He was tormented by it. So where's the in between on that? And are the police just saying, oh, it was just static to maybe generate a response? Yeah, I'm, I'm baffled by it as well. But we we do know that the, the police uh, did email us back. Uh, this is from a while ago, but they said, uh, yes, we did confirm that phone call came from the Red Cross. Um, and the question was, though police have said the phone call to Billy was from the Red Cross, Billy's mother, that'd be Sharon Roush, is firm in her stance that it is impossible to know that. Have you been able to definitively confirm that the phone call Billy received while on the plane to New Hampshire came from the Red Cross? Uh, and they said, yes, we did confirm that phone call came from the Red Cross. So there's a couple of weird things here. I don't think the, I don't think the phone call was uh, on while he was on the plane in retrospect. And I also don't understand why the red, why, where the discrepancy is with this calling card, why the Red Cross would need a calling card to call someone. Yeah, like that is just, that sounds like a bunch of nonsense as far as I'm concerned. Um, I did read also online um, <clears throat> that that it was reported, some articles rather say that the call came through while Bill was walking through security at the Dallas airport. So something to note there, he does not recall if he had a layover so even though it's reported in this um, article, I'll be able to send it to you guys after um, that he was in the Dallas airport, um, which would indicate a layover. He doesn't recall if there was a layover. He does recall where he flew out of and where he flew into, but not if there was a layover. Um, but he, Bill himself has said that he had just shut his phone off when he received a voice message. Um, Sharon, Bill's mom, described the message in her personal journals that have been posted online in quotes. It was very short, consisted of shivering, soft, whimpering sound with labor, labored breathing as if someone was very cold. And it tracing back to a calling card is really bizarre because this, this is where what I'm trying to think out loud here. Um, how would the cops or Bill have known what number called. If the phone was off, we know that calls aren't um, logged on the phone records anyway. Um, like an incoming call when the phone is off, you're not going to see it on the phone record. So how did he know what number to call back? Because he said yeah, he, himself that he called the number back, right? Uh, I don't remember that. Um, but but that is that is a good point that um, I mean maybe his phone wasn't off maybe it was just in his pocket as he went through security or something. 
Well, he says that he, in his statements online, he says the phone was off and that he was certain of that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know all the, uh, how that works. What, what's the, uh, what's the, is it star six, seven or star six, nine? Well, well, if the phone is off, would the phone, would it come through as a call? How would you be able to trace the number? I think you could still star six, seven or star six, nine it. Couldn't you? I don't think so. If your phone is off and I call you and you turn it back on and press star six, nine, that's not going to, I don't think that's going to do it. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure. I just, it'd be interesting to know exactly what time that call supposedly came through. If in fact he was in Dallas airport, um, if the phone was off, how, how did the cops get the number? I don't know. Those are just all questions. Like it's just not sitting well in my mind. And I, I like to know definitively an answer before I can move on to something else. Yeah. It's really hard to say, uh, even with the police's answer, um, because the question is about a, a phone call while he was on the plane. So I don't know. <laughs> um, so you, you never know. Like, uh, I think we have to be really specific with that stuff and because we know they're being really specific, you know, um, we did confirm that, but, but also we, I mean, we spent a long time, uh, putting these questions together. So I don't know where that came from then that he was on the plane. Maybe that was just something we didn't, uh, track back, but yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to write that in my little book. Um, another, um, oddity with the red cross whimpering call is that he was certain in the beginning anyways, um, from what he stated that he really thought that it was Mora on the phone leaving this whimpering call. So my question is, according to his roaming charges on his phone records, it, it doesn't appear that he went directly to um, where the accident site, right? Because his roaming calls indicate that at 4.55 on Wednesday, February 11th, he was in Rutland, Vermont, and then at 7.02 p.m., he was in Burlington, Vermont. So you guys would probably know better than me. I haven't looked it up on a map. But if he landed in, um, is it the Bradley Airport in Connecticut, right? Which I've, I've looked right. up. And I think that is um, kind of like a dual facility for military and civilians. So where is Rutland in relation to the Bradley Airport? Probably be a couple of hours north. Rutland, Vermont to to Bradley. Yeah, can check that real quick. That is two and a half hours north, pretty much straight north up ninety one. Yeah, it ranges from two hours and thirty seven minutes to three hours and six minutes, depending on which um, route you go. Okay, so. I don't know. So he's advised that he flew out of Will Rogers Airport in Oklahoma, which is also a military base slash airport, flew into Bradley International Airport, which is in Windsor Locks, Connecticut. And then I, in my notes, it says also a dual use military uh, airport facility. Um, so the biggest, I, I, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to piece together is what time did he land what time did they go to um, see law enforcement? Because it's been reported online that they, um, by Sharon and her journal statements that they 
went um, to law enforcement on February the 11th, the day that he arrived. So we can see here at, you know, pretty much five o'clock, he's in Rutland, seven o'clock, he's in Burlington. And then it would just be interesting to know, did he go right to law enforcement after that? So another two and a half hours. So he'd be getting there at like 930. Right. Okay. So you're saying his phone pinged off of Rutland. So yeah, that, that could, I guess, simply be just him driving up 91 because he did say that he drove up. Uh, I think his parents picked him up at Bradley, right? Okay. So that, I guess that could, that could be that. Um, and not, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a flight, it's a long flight. You know, I think it's, it's several hours, um, from Oklahoma to, uh, Connecticut. Yeah. I think when I looked it up, it was at least the shortest that I saw without any layovers was like maybe five and a half hours. But then when you throw in the mix of this potential layover spot in Dallas, then it would be even longer. So, and then when you look at the phone records for that particular day, it just doesn't, there's no um, lull in phone activity that kind of matches that flight. Well, you're saying that there's no gap of five plus hours where a call's not made. Right, on the day that he said that he flew out. Flew out. So if, if he flew from Oklahoma City to, or Will Rogers to, uh, to Dallas, and then Dallas to Hartford, Connecticut, I got that as about two hours and 56 minutes flight time from Dallas to Hartford. So out of all the cities we've heard from, that would be the shortest duration. Um, but I still think that is a little bit uh, off in some way based on the phone records. I agree. I agree. What What is it about the phone records that bothers you guys? Well, I, I mean, I think you, you hit on it right there. I mean, without, you know, and we didn't, I guess, say it directly. But, uh, yeah, so I think there's about a two-and-a-half-hour break on that day. So I guess, I mean, wh why, how, how don't we know, what, like, what his flight was? I mean, I guess I guess it could just be, again, faulty memory with um, not knowing where his, uh, his layover was, you know. But um, I don't know. I just... And again, don't want to accuse anyone of anything, not we're not doing that. We're not inviting harassment of anyone. All we're doing is uh, just asking some questions that I think uh, we, as the community here, um, are still perplexed by all these years later. Absolutely. And I mean, in this regard, the, there's some small steps that could basically end the whole conversation. Like, you know, I've seen people online asking him for his DA-31. I guess it's a military leave form. I've seen people online asking for proof um, of, of like his flight itinerary. I don't know if that's something that you can, you can obtain or, I mean, even at asking his mom, because his mom seemed to keep really good records of everything that was going on. I'm sure that kind of information would be in her journals. I don't know. I think she lost some of those records um, at one point. Okay. Well, one one thing that has confused me, and it's confusing me even more now that we're talking about it in regards to the phone records, is the number of very, very short calls that happen while he's in New Hampshire from his cell phone, right? There's, there's, a, there's a number of very, very short calls, uh, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, one minute, a lot of one minutes. Why aren't these roaming? Good question, Lance. I don't know. I mean, he calls he calls uh, West Point and talks to West Point for 20 minutes. There's another call um, 
that where he calls home. He calls home for like 12 minutes. There's a nine-minute call in between all of like the... I am looking at call number 506 and call number 490. This is on February 11th. One was... uh The 490 was at 1030 in the morning and 506 was... uh. 2.28 p.m. I'm just curious, like, why aren't these... I mean, maybe he's in service, though, right? You have to be out of, like, range and rely on another network's tower, you know, to, to be technically roaming, I think. So uh, he must have been within a sprint tower, within the realm, you know, the area. Yeah, okay. Because, Tim, as you and I both know, there's no cell service up there, even today. <laughs> we know that all too well, Lance. All too well. I don't know. Maybe it registers the call and then the actual minutes where the person picks up and speaks, it becomes the roaming charge. You know what I mean? Like the, the one minutes are just like making the call. Yeah, it's really weird. I've, I've never, there are a lot of one minute, one minute, three minute, two minutes. Hear me out on this. I'm going to try to like uh, workshop this in my brain. So he's up there. He's out of service. He's making a phone call. He he calls home from his cell phone and it rings and rings. Someone picks up. When when it picks up, that registers automatically on his regular cell phone bill one minute. That that takes up one minute of his um of his call, his used minutes, uh, or his available minutes. Everything beyond that one minute, now that it's going beyond his available minutes, becomes roaming because he's not near a cell phone tower like like it is today, that it's very spotty cell phone service. So maybe there's more to his roaming charges that are in line with this phone record. I don't know. Maybe. Because there's so many like little short calls. But no, that no, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, but there's some... There's some other ones too, though. I mean, there's there's longer ones too. There's definitely some short ones, but I mean, I just think he was within a sprint tower most of the time. Another question I have about the phone yeah, records yeah. And, and these one minute, um, two minute things, would it record a text message between people? Would one text equ equate to one minute? Because I think recently he's indicated that Mora's phone um, did have texting capabilities and that they had just given her that phone at Christmas just before right. she went missing. Right, and he did say that they did uh, text. Um, so, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if that is represented somehow on the um, on the phone records either. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, it's, it's definitely possible that they texted after we know that they spoke, yeah. So one of the biggest questions for me right now, and I think we touched on this a little bit on the first episode that we did, is what happened at UMass, the days and weeks leading up to her disappearance. Um, and I mean, no disrespect to the family or to Fred, but he has pretty consistently said that what happened there doesn't matter, just find my daughter. But I think it does matter. I think it could speak to her state of mind, um, and I know that we're not owed anything in this community, but I think most people that are invested want to know if the events leading up to her disappearance are relevant or related. And I know we've talked about this on um, some of your Get Vocal live episodes as well, and you've had um, guests discuss this on your podcast as well, but it, to me, it really does seem pertinent to discuss. I think you're right, because 
there are, you know, in looking at Bill's phone records, you know, he on the ninth before Mora disappears, he's calling Mora, he's calling her, her friends, he's calling Kate, um, and so there's that flurry of calls before she even goes missing, um, and then obviously it gets uh, escalated afterwards, and he's calling uh, Kate and Kate's dorm, and then later he calls Sarah. Um, but I guess, I guess why though, right? What, I mean, are, were they having a fight then? I mean, that, that's one of my main questions is why all these calls to Maura's friends. Absolutely. And, and he's never, um, come out and set the record straight. I I know in one of his, um, compiled statements online, he's indicated that, you know, well, just a couple days before that Maura was in an accident and crashed her dad's car. I was so worried about her, but, um, I don't know. I, if I bring up the phone records again, I'm pretty sure after um, supposedly Maura called Bill from Fred's hotel room, say at like 4.40 in the morning or something like that, after the accident, I think there was a period of maybe more than 12 hours before Bill called her again. So I would think you'd be more concerned about the person immediately, you know, preceding the accident, not um, on the 9th when it happened on the evening of the 8th. Yeah, the more it would be the morning, I guess, of the 8th, early morning. And um, so one of the times we spoke to Bill and uh, he, he told us that Maura never mentioned the accident on that phone call. Uh, on the on those two phone calls, yeah, because then he's gone on to say the opposite on uh, on Reddit. Whoa, I didn't know that. Yeah, he said that uh, we we asked him about it, and he said that he was pretty much the time during that phone call was him pretty much calming her down. That she was she was upset, and and he was calming her down. And he said he she did not tell him about the accident during that phone call. Um, I just want to backtrack real quick and, and say uh, you were talking about Fred and how Fred has said it doesn't matter what happened at UMass and the only thing is finding my daughter. Um, and we've experienced uh, situations with him where he said to a group of people, it's so amazing to see all these people come together. I felt like I, I feel like I'm alone in this. I don't feel like I'm alone in this anymore. And it's usually when he's addressing people during the uh, vigils that they have every year. And I just want to say, like, put it out there again. We are here for fred and for the family to utilize as they see fit there is a huge community uh it kind of blew my mind when i first heard fred say i always thought i was alone in all this there's been some ups and downs and some some uh you know missteps here and there but ultimately we have people like you who are really digging you know and and using this platform to put the word out and to get answers uh in the in you know the most transparent way possible absolutely i'm willing to help fred in any way that i can um, and, you know, it's interesting because him saying, you know, whatever happened leading up to um, her disappearance doesn't matter. But then when um, we hear about the off camp potential off campus party and the three guys, um, he was interested in that lead. Right. He did want to talk to those guys. Right. Yeah, I, I can see why. Um, yeah, so it's it's a little um, different, I guess, there, um, especially, you know, considering we, we didn't really know the existence of those guys, like, as far as being confirmed until recently. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely interesting. I would say those, like, I know the police have apparently spoken to them, um, but 
man, that's, that's a really good lead. Yeah, it's huge. And um, something else. um, So when we're talking about going back to the beginning, I had read um, James Renner's book many years ago um, and recently just uh, downloaded it on Audible. So it's pretty cool because it's uh, narrated by him as well. So it's nice when the author of the book is the one that's telling you their story, right? Um, but I was um, kind of taken aback. There's a chapter in there called Billy Don't Lose My Number. Does that make you think of that song? Yes. God damn it. That's going to be in my head for like a week. Sorry. I know it's in mine now too for like a week. So in that um, chapter, um, there's actually uh, Bill ends up calling James and I guess James gets to ask him some of the questions, kind of like an interview. In that interview, um, Bill does admit that he was aware when James wrote this book and interviewed him that the party was off campus. He knew then. So I, I urge everyone to check out the book. It's the chapter, Billy Don't Lose My Number, when James interviews Bill. And Bill um, clearly says that he was aware that the party was off campus. Yeah, still, again, I mean, certainly seems like some mystery there in Amherst. I mean, I, you know, I, I guess... I, I guess uh, it would be easier if there wasn't because it does seem like there's some resistance to some of that. So I don't know what uh, what the truth is there, but we just got to keep asking questions politely. For sure. Right. So does it matter if there was a party there and at that party, the plan was made to host another party in New Hampshire that Mora was invited to? So Mora takes out some cash, buys some alcohol, and she's on the way to this other other party that people had planned during the party at UMass. Interesting, right? So does would that matter? I'm just like throwing out the, the well. You're throwing out a scenario, right? Uh, hypoth- yeah, hypothetical okay. scenario. That's probably the most innocent um, contributing factor to to her leaving. Go up to New Hampshire, take some time off, come with us, stay at this place. You know, whatever place, maybe they were planning the place, which would explain why she was looking into a place to stay. And then they found a place that she didn't have to pay for or something. And she's on her way up there and something happens. Is that related? But I always come back to that is an innocent plan made by college kids. Why aren't any of those college kids coming forward and saying she was on her way to this place? We we're adults. You know, we're we're 21 years old. We can have a party. We can take time off from school if we want to. We're not breaking the law. She was on her way to a party. Something terrible happened to her along the way. I wish I could help. No one's ever said anything like that. So that leads me to believe that something more, um, uh, uh, I guess, dark happened. I don't want to say sinister or anything like that, but something there was something else that was uh, that needs to that that should never be mentioned. That's just where my head naturally goes to because. I mean, unless unless some people just aren't listening, maybe maybe people just don't know. You know, maybe they don't know. Maybe they invited this twenty-one-year-old young woman to go to a party, and now there'd be and no one ever told her. Oh, that's more that's more Murray. The, the remember that girl that you invited to the party who never showed up? Yeah, that was more Murray. And then they're like, "Who's more Murray?" Oh, look at this. Look at these articles. Like, listen to this podcast. Like, maybe that's happened. Watch these documentaries. Check out Twitter. Right. <laughs> So Bill admits to James that he is aware that the party was off campus, despite Kate Markopoulos 
telling James Renner multiple times that the party was on campus. So I, I, this is where, you know, theoretically, I'm thinking, like, why all the calls to Kate and everything? Is that where Bill found out that the party was off campus? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I wish I wish I knew what those calls were about again. I mean, I, if if he was concerned because of the accident, I mean, it's odd because he told us she, he he didn't know that she was in the accident until he was searching for her. Um, but again, that that's a conflicting statement because he has said the opposite there on uh, online. So, uh, you know, again, it's the conflicting statements. And, and w- with all due respect, memory uh, when trauma is happening is going to be a lot worse when trauma is not happening, when you're not experiencing it. So with all due respect there. Absolutely. I agree. And all we're trying to do is answer these questions and move on, right? Ultimately, our goal, everyone's goal is to determine what happened to Mara. It would be great to move on, to to know that there was some plan or that no one knows about it. Um, and then maybe it's definitely a local at that point. But uh, when we haven't heard from some of these people and there are these inconsistencies, we're all left scratching our heads. Yeah, for sure. And then I think that um, tends to, to lead to um, suspicions right it makes people suspicious or it makes people create these scenarios in their head and put them out there and they're not true i just want to know the facts Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.